Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the violence of denial. An episode in which I am going to disavow a previous different drummer, specifically because that different drummer refuses to even acknowledge the real existence of people he supposedly has been called to reach through counseling. But first, I'm recording this episode on November 27th. In a perfect world, I may have recorded it before now and put it out on November 27th. But the date itself is very important. And it's very important because of our different drummer this week, Harvey Milk. I first became aware of Harvey Milk sometime shortly after maybe 1986 or 7, when video release became available for the documentary film The Times of Harvey Milk, released in 1984. I was interested in the movie primarily as a documentary and was not necessarily drawn to the title because of you know the topic or the subject matter. I was completely unfamiliar with the storyline. But as someone who has a great deal of enthusiasm for film and was learning more and more about documentary, this documentary appealed to me. But an interesting thing happened between watching this film in the 1980s and coming along 20 years later and watching the film Milk, released as a theatrical biopic by Gus Van Zandt, is that with the Times of Harvey Milk, I approached it initially from the perspective of craft. I was interested in how the documentary was made. I was almost, in some ways, more interested in how the documentary was telling its story than what the story itself was about. This became evident to me because when I realized that a theatrical film, you know, a biopic was going to be released about Harvey Milk, I went back to view this documentary again, again with almost 20 years passing between the two viewings, and there was a great deal of the storyline that I'd forgotten. Now, in the second viewing, I was interested in watching the movie from the perspective of the biography that it was telling, whereas the first time I'd been looking more about how the movie was put together and you know, what is a documentary it was trying to accomplish. I tend to find this same thing happen when people talk to me about reading the Bible. It's not unusual based on my personal interests. And if you look at the, you know, the point of the show, it's not unusual for people to find out that I'm a Christian and to say, well, you know, I've read the Bible almost as a dismissive way of saying, I don't need to hear anything from you about it because I have already read it. But my guess is that a lot of the time, maybe even most of the time, those people who've read the Bible from an unbelieving perspective have read it the same way I watched the movie, The Times of Harvey Milk. I'm interested in finding out what this is all about. I'm perhaps interested in finding things about it that I don't accept. I'm looking at it as a film critic to see, well, was it put together badly? Are there inconsistencies? And when you approach a movie from that avenue or a piece of fiction or a sacred text, you're going to miss something that you wouldn't miss if you approached it from the perspective of genuinely trying to learn what's going on there. What is this truly all about? And that was the big difference for me. I'm a fan of the movie Milk, 
directed by Gus Van Zandt, written by Dustin Lance Black, and feel like the Academy Award awards and attention that the film received was well-deserved. I've got a link that I've just put up on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page that another friend on Facebook shared to give you a sense of what the film is like. But also, I really think that my friend Mark captured a really great moment of the movie to emphasize on this particular day, the anniversary of Milk's assassination. Now, I won't go into any more plot than that, either for the, uh, the biopic or for the documentary. If you haven't seen Milk or The Times of Harvey Milk, either one of them well worth your time and have a certain story to tell. But that clip on the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page is a pretty good example of why I've chosen Milk as a different drummer for this particular episode and why I've taken this particular time to stop and address this topic. It's something that's been on my mind for quite some time. And that's that the real turning point in Milk's life before his political career, but certainly a theme running through his political career, was that it was no longer possible for you know, in this particular group of people, this gay rights group, this gay rights organization, to allow itself to live in the margins and to stay in the closet. Wikipedia describes Milk this way. It says his swearing-in made national headlines as he became the first non-incumbent, openly gay man in the United States to win election for public office. So a significant milestone occurred. The quote that I would like to share, though, is from one of the speeches that he gave you know, when they were trying to stand up to an initiative that was proposed in California that would make it a crime for any school employee, pu punishable by termination, to say, not just to say anything positive about gay people or gay rights, but even to remain neutral would have been a crime. Uh, an affront to the First Amendment has something to do with why this particular initiative was ultimately opposed by former Governor Ronald Reagan, current California Governor Jerry Brown, and President Jimmy Carter. Here's the quote from the speech that I'd like to share, the Hope speech. On this anniversary of Stonewall, I asked my gay sisters and brothers to make the commitment to fight for themselves, for their freedom, for their country. We will not win our rights by staying quietly in our closets. We are coming out to fight the lies, the myths, the distortions. We are coming out to tell the truths about gays, for I am tired of the conspiracy of silence. So I am going to talk about it, and I want you to talk about it. You must come out. Come out to your parents. Come out to your relatives. And of course, there's more. The better way, of course, to take in that speech is to just check the uh, Sean Penn's presentation of it in the movie Milk. The key here, though, is that when a group's very existence is called into question, when the reality of who they are is denied, and when their rights are being challenged, the last thing in the world you can do is stay silent, stay quiet, cower in fear, and allow those who pretend you don't exist to have a head start on you because you yourself are acting as if you don't exist. The amount of courage that it took for Milk to stand and give that particular speech in this moment in history, but also the stance he took in general, is testi testified to by his assassination, essentially a political retribution, uh, an act of revenge. And there are really relatively few times in American political history where we can point to a situation like this. And we know the names of most of them. We know the names of the Kennedys. We know the names of Martin, of Martin Luther King Jr. We know the names of presidents who've been assassinated. This was a case of somebody who was serving 
as a city supervisor. Essentially, assassinated for his political views. Assassinated for being willing, among other things, to stand up to the religious right. That's enough for me to introduce this episode of Inappropriate Conversations with a different drummer, Harvey Milk. Before I get deep into what essentially is going to be an episode that is a podcast review, I am going to take a a much more strident position than I think I have before on anything related to the general field of podcasting. I'm a podcast fan first and foremost, and somebody who participates in, well, the craft for want of a better word. But before I do that, I think it's probably important for me to help those who are on the right side of the political spectrum, which is something I think I'm capable of doing as somebody who is a radical moderate who sits in the middle. I've got a point of view about both sides. I'm not far enough out of touch from the right that I can't explain to the left what's going on over there. I'm not so far out of touch with the left that I can't explain what's going on to the right over there. And on this particular issue, I think I've spent a good good enough time on both sides of even the extremes to know what I'm saying. Perhaps next week or perhaps in a future episode, I want to deal head on with homophobia. And before I get even one step further in this particular inappropriate conversation, let me just make the point loud and clear. I understand homophobia. And so when I criticize, perhaps even loudly, perhaps even angrily, homophobia and bigotry, I've seen it firsthand. And maybe at some future point, I'll share my own walk again My hands aren't necessarily clean. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone else that I would not be willing to point back at myself, and I may actually do so before the calendar year's over. We will see. But first, let's answer the question, what in the heck has happened in the last six months to a year to two years in American politics? I mean, if you remember the religious right, you've got to be looking around saying, what in the world went on? Why, why this change? How can we explain this changing point of view where now seemingly in a lot of states, there are more people than not who not only are in favor of gay people having equal rights, but are comfortable just go ahead and calling equal rights marriage. Now, I've made a post before about inappropriate conversations. I'm more than willing to be deferential toward my conservative friends over the use of terminology and the meaning of terminology. But I'm not the least bit willing to be deferential when it comes to providing people equal access and due process. And that, I think, may explain as much as anything the difference. What I think we saw in this particular 2012 election cycle is a huge failed backlash. We saw a lot of people, conservative in nature, mainly Catholic and evangelical Protestants, banding together to literally try to wind the clock back something like 50 years. It didn't work. And part of the reason that it didn't work and that it won't work in the future is that we have a different society than we did then. And denying that fact is positively unhealthy, might even be a little bit dangerous. I want to quote an article published uh, May 15th, 2012 from Justin Wolfers, in which he explains with reference to Betsy Stevens, a co-author, and looking at the work of Gary Becker, an economist from the University of Chicago, who won the Nobel Prize partly for describing the family as an economic institution. In this article, Wolfers, speaking through Freakonomics, both the podcast and the site, tries to take a shot at helping us understand the difference between what we call the traditional family and the modern family, 
and why these two things are not part of a spectrum where we can wind forward or wind back the clock. Quoting Wolfers, In Becker's view, the joining of husband and wife yields a more productive firm because it allows one spouse to specialize in earning income from working in the market while the other specializes in the domestic sphere. The division of labor allows for greater productivity, just as it does in the workplace. The different skills required for these separate roles provides an economic rationale for the advice your grandmother may have offered that opposites attract. It's that generation who prize traditional separate spheres marriages, who find the idea of same-sex marriage to be foreign. And this type of marriage was not a particularly appealing institution for same-sex couples, whose relationships typically eschew this traditional division of labor. But heterosexual couples in more recent generations are also less likely to aspire to a separate sphere marriage. Economists describe a second industrial revolution in which washing machines, dishwashers, and microwave ovens have reduced the value to the family firm, quote-unquote, of employing a domestic specialist. Cheap clothes can be imported from China rather than sewn at home. Healthy meals can be purchased from the freezer at Trader Joe's. What's more, legal and social changes have broken down many of the barriers keeping women out of the labor market. Explicit discrimination has declined. Women have gained more control over their fertility. Jumping in for a moment is Greg. I've cited before, but only very elliptically, that perhaps in the late 1960s, early 1970s, economic pressures became a factor here as well. It wasn't just that women had demonstrated a capability of functioning equally in the workplace, enough so that they were making demands, properly I would say, for equal pay for equal work. It was also that it became necessary to maintain the standard of living that existed in the immediate post-war era in the 1950s for there to be more than one wage earner in the family. It wasn't just that you needed less time and effort spent to sew clothes and iron and wash things by hand. It was also that that same person had a greater economic value being an equal breadwinner or at least a contributor in that area. The economics of America hitting us on both sides, the need for greater income, and the fact that it simply took less time to run a home. The other instance that I would provide here is a very early inappropriate conversations where I talk about companionship marriage and quoting the, frankly, evangelical Christian speaker, David R. Mace, and his perspective that even when it comes to sexual intimacy and the strength of relationships within a marriage, very important that there be an equality there that you know, really didn't necessarily exist or wasn't necessarily valued 50 years earlier. Back to the article from Wolfers. All these developments have increased the opportunity cost of having a spouse stay home because that spouse now has greater value in the marketplace. As a result, our grandparents' marriages, in which husband and wife have separate roles and spheres, are no longer so popular. Two earner couples have become the norm, and families spend less time on housework. The point is technological, economic, social, and legal change have undermined the benefits of the traditional marriages of the 1950s. When the benefits of marriage decline, you might expect marriage itself to disappear. Instead, it has evolved to offer different benefits. Today, we search for a soulmate rather than a good homemaker or provider. We are more likely to regard marriage as a forum for shared experiences and passions. Viewed through an economic frame, modern partnerships are based on consumption complementarities. 
the joys of sharing things and experiences, rather than the production-based gains that motivated traditional marriage. Consistent with this, co-parenting has replaced the separate roles of nurturer and disciplinarian. All of this means that changes in heterosexual marriage have yielded an institution that is now more attractive to same-sex couples. In turn, we believe that this explains why the gay and lesbian community have been so active in advocating for access to marriage. Moreover, these same economic forces may also explain why it is the younger generations that are so much more likely to support same-sex marriage. For heterosexuals who have embraced the modern notion of marriage, the idea of same-sex marriage seems natural. These couples aren't any different from them. They love and support each other, raise kids together, and are committed to each other. They share values, desires, and interests. Not allowing them to marry is as arbitrary as not allowing couples of different races, ethnicities, or religions to marry. Looking ahead, we think these same factors will continue to reshape marriage. It is no coincidence that many of the opponents of same-sex marriage are also opponents of the ongoing shifts to marriages of equality. Theirs is a futile battle. The reach of markets will keep expanding, allowing individuals and families to reap greater returns by selling their specialized skills and services outside the home. Technological change will further undermine the benefits of specialization within the family. Improvements in women's education will continue to raise the opportunity cost of staying at home. My prediction, speaking as Wolfers, the reach of same-sex marriage will still continue to grow, and in a decade so, will be largely uncontroversial. And, speaking as Greg, the opposition to companionship marriage will begin to make less and less sense, even to those people who, identifying as Christian, view themselves as you know, supporters of traditional marriage and opponents to anything else today. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. Throughout inappropriate conversations, I have spoken about quiet violence. What is quiet violence? Well, you know, we know what the opposite is. We know what loud and overt violence is. Anything from war to mugging to fist fighting to, you know, domestic situations where the police have to be called to intervene. But quiet violence is just as harmful. And at its heart, it comes down to this notion of me denying someone else basic human rights. A very overt form of violence, if I do that with a gun by invading someone's country and imprisoning them. But it is still a violence, a quiet violence, if I do that from the voting booth. If I do that by giving money to the wrong kind of political activist, the kind of political activists who have raised enough money and support to put kill the gays bills in place in countries like Uganda. But really what it comes down to, when you boil it all the way down to its core, it's a denial that people are who they say they are, or that if they are, they have a right to be who they say they are. Now, I've maintained all along on inappropriate conversations that the day would come when there would be a different drummer that I would need to disavow. And I'm coming awfully close to doing that now. We get to the end of this episode, we may decide that I've actually done it. Not sure. I don't have a plan in that respect. But what I do want to do is to provide on this particular topic, the question of gender roles, the question of homosexuality, a perspective on a former different drummer. And in doing so, I'm going to give myself permission to speak freely. 
and I'm expecting that this episode is going to carry an explicit language tag. Not because I'm going to unleash an angry you know, stream of profanity, but because I'm going to speak frankly and clearly about issues. Where, as Harvey Milk said, you've got to be clear. You've got to come out. You've got to be public. Because if you do not enunciate a position here, somebody could use the gentility or the carefulness or the the notion of, well, maybe I'm not speaking to an adult audience. I'm speaking to kids in the room and I've got to be careful and, and shroud my language in all kinds of euphemism. No, I'm not going to do that. Where it makes sense and where it's appropriate, we're going to put our cards on the table and perhaps even talk a bit medically. And I may, in the, in the course of doing this right, need to refer to someone who isn't me in order to communicate clearly the full range of what we're discussing. But first, I want to point you in the direction of a podcast, or a series of podcasts, actually, that I'm going to tell you that I don't think you should listen to. And what feels so strange about this, what's so frustrating, is that this is a series of podcasts recorded by somebody who is a different drummer. In Inappropriate Conversations 45, talking about macho weakness, uh, the insufficiency of blunt force masculinity. In this, I named the different drummer John Eldridge, and I did so for a reason. Because Eldridge's ministry, if you will, is speaking to men who are, to be blunt about it, too cowardly to be actively part of the church. Actually speaking to and through the macho BS that's out there and trying to get men to connect to a genuine form of masculinity where the results of that genuine masculinity will not be being just a little bit too cool to have anything to do with church. Exactly the opposite. In this respect, I'm still on board with that point of view, and I think he's right. Unfortunately, like so many people who consider themselves to be politically conservative and part of the religious right, even tangentially part of the religious right, you find people who approach the Gospels, who speak on behalf of Jesus, where their first and foremost concern is not fidelity to Christ or fidelity to Scripture, but fidelity to a specific set of political positions. They go, in other words, to the Bible with the same bias that I talked about non-believers going to the Bible with earlier. They go to the Bible missing things that are really important and perhaps somewhat obvious in the same way that I completely forgot about the Twinkie defense aspect that was exposed in the movie The Times of Harvey Milk. You only get from it what you're looking for if you go into something with filters. In other words, those who go to the Bible looking for specific chapters and verses to back up their political opinions may or may not find them, but they're certainly not going to find truth when they're there. So what is this podcast I speak of? It is the uh, John Eldridge and Ransomed Heart audio podcast, where episodes were released earlier this year in September and October called Jesus's View of Gender, Part 1 and 2, and Jesus's View of Homosexuality, Parts 1 and 2. The podcast is actually a conversation between John Eldridge and Craig McConnell, where they discuss a variety of things. And at times, I've enjoyed this podcast in the past, but not now. In fact, this podcast could leave my directory if I get just ever so slightly more aggravated. And I think you'll see as I review these four episodes that I'm plenty aggravated already. Now, part of the reason that I'm not recommending that anybody go to this podcast and listen to John Eldridge first Because I think that you may listen to my comment, you may listen to my review, and find not only that you're not going to get value for your time, it's about 70 plus minutes of podcasting over those four different episodes, 
they're not particularly long each, but there's four of them. But you might also be deeply offended. You might come away with a perspective that is harmful, frankly, to you as an individual. And if you want to spare yourself the aggravation of hearing somebody say things which are ridiculously false, to be honest, or seem to be attacking who you are as a person, well, you may want to give me a shot at this first and then decide if you want to give John Eldridge what I'm going to call equal time. So I'm going to do my best at times quoting, but not directly, not with audio clips. Partly is because I don't want to necessarily spend that much time pulling in points of view that I'm just going to completely refute, but partly because I don't want anything to come back to me in terms of saying, well, you use this information without rights. I believe I'm going to be well within fair use of anything I comment today. But just to be extra certain that this podcast can stand on its own, because we do know that there are certain people who are religiously conservative and politically active who find you know, a judicial activism of their own that seems to be completely inconsistent with all of the complaints we've heard since the Reagan administration about the evils of judicial activism. I'm just going to make 100% sure that I'm dotting my I's and crossing my T's because it is not like me to spend this much time offering what I'm hoping is a fairly devastating critique of someone else's point of view. In the realm of podcasting, I tend to try to be very supportive. Well, not this time. John Eldridge opens up the gender part one episode with a very interesting story about having a great deal of what I would call fear about addressing this particular issue at all. Now, he describes the issue as being first and foremost about gender, but really when you listen to all four, if you do, of these podcast episodes, what you're going to find is the first one or two are just laying a framework that he would refer later to for the second couple of episodes. And he's pretty upfront about it from the very beginning. He's going to talk about gender. He's going to talk about homosexuality. But it's unmistakable that what he's doing has a heck of a lot of talk about they and them. And as much as he might want to think he's avoided the we-they siege mentality that I've described in the past as something that you know the Christian Research Institute and another different drummer that I find to be somewhat controversial, Hank Hanegraaff has referred to not having this we-they siege mentality against the world even with those that you find disagreeable for whatever reason. It's pretty obvious early on in this podcast that John Eldridge has staked out a position of who he is, and he knows who they are as well. He compared establishing traditional gender roles with setting a speed limit. And this is true throughout the episode, where he's making what I would consider to be strangely inappropriate comparisons, either to the law or to medical conditions when referring to questions related to gender and sexual preference. He says, we're not looking to put people into rigid categories, but there are differences of expressions between masculine and feminine. And to me, I was intrigued by this series because he starts the series off by raising the question of what is Jesus's view? What did Jesus say? What are Jesus's beliefs on these questions? And he shared scripture to do so. Matthew 19, in fact, verses 1 through 15, where he's quoting Jesus and believes that in these passages, Jesus provides an answer to the question of gender roles and homosexuality. Quoting scripture, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? 
And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them made from the beginning the male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is speaking here on divorce. But Eldridge believes that because he answers the question relating to male and female and refers back to the first chapter of Genesis in Hebrew Scripture, talking about Adam and Eve and the notion of a man leaving his father and mother and a woman leaving her father and mother to be joined together as one flesh, means that Jesus is speaking something far more broadly, that there are only two genders or gender identities or sexual orientations in the entire sphere of human experience. I question whether this is what Jesus is trying to say at all, but we'll get there in just a moment. Craig McConnell, his co-host on the podcast, points out that we're living in a culture that is trying to abolish gender distinctions. My question is, maybe instead we're just a culture that is recognizing what is real among us. They make the claim that you cannot prove what is natural and right by doing observation in the form of survey or analyzing data because humans are flawed. But this remains an unholy mistake. It ignores that which is real based on some sort of Christian utopianism. Perhaps there was that moment at the beginning of creation where there was one man and then later one woman. And then, of course, they slept with each other. And then, of course, they had offspring. And of course, those offspring had incestuous sex with each other in order to make more offspring. And that through time, man developed an interweaving of relationships where perhaps everything goes back to the same initial point of one man and one woman. But it's Christian utopianism to say that nothing between then and now has changed. And we'll find out as we take a look at some of the comments that Eldridge makes later on in these podcasts. It's also too much of a shortcut to say that those changes represent, you know, some sort of brokenness some sort of perversion, some sort of deviation. There's a paranoia inherent in this first gender episode of the Ransom Heart Audio podcast. It says something to the effect of, you couldn't play this particular podcast episode in most colleges and universities. In fact, at most Christians and colleges and universities. And he called out what he referred to as a fear of backward thinking. Jesus referred to male and female in God's design, according to Eldridge. But the Pharisees were asking him a specific question. And here's my issue with the first episode, gender part one. Jesus is referring a lot here, in fact, to male and female. But he does so because the Pharisees asked him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? You know, when I speak with people who are not Christians, 
you know, perhaps are open-minded agnostics. One of the things that I emphasize is we don't have any evidence to tell us that Jesus was insane. Therefore, it is inappropriate to start off with an assumption that anytime he makes a claim, whether it be a claim to deity, a claim to prophecy, that we have to assume that because we don't believe in things like deity and prophecy in some corners of our society, therefore that he must be some kind of psychotic. He must be some sort of schizophrenic. Not so. In fact, I think the claim that Eldridge is making in this first podcast I'm referring to is the same exact mistake. Jesus would have to be some kind of very confused person to be answering a specific question about the law in Hebrew scripture about one man and one woman being one married couple and getting divorced. If he believed for one second, that he thought he was answering that question to talk about any other form of human relationship. Jesus is not, in this passage, laying down some official proclamation from his perspective about gender identity, sexual orientation, or the way couples get together. He's answering a trick question from a group of Pharisees about one hypothetical man and one hypothetical woman, and therefore, if he answers questions from the perspective of this one man and this one woman, he's not excluding any other possibility in terms of relationship or gender or sexuality or orientation or sexual attraction or human relationship. He's answering the question that was presented to him. The second podcast in the series, Jesus' View on Gender Part 2, carries forth from this same spot. Eldridge's point of view is that there are gender differences in Scripture, and that those differences are somehow concrete and real. That whatever was true 5,000 years ago or 8,000 years ago in Hebrew culture is supposed to be true from now on. I think there's not a lot of evidence that will guide us to that point of view at the exclusion of the idea that perhaps a lot of those differences were truly cultural and not some sort of deviation that's happened over time. Meaning that if we're different now than we were then, it's because our culture is different now than we were then. For starters, most of us in evangelical Christian circles are not Jews. Most of us are Gentiles. Eldridge calls the blurring of gender differences as a defiance to God. But God represents all people, all genders, all combinations. And as we go forth with this criticism of the Ransomed Heart podcast episodes, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means to talk about an intelligent design and the folly of making that design sufficiently unintelligent in order to point to it and hold it up as an intelligent design. But if there's any one point I want to drive home most in this episode, my biggest perhaps criticism and aggravation with Ransomed Heart and its strident position, trying to hold this traditional line that, frankly, at the start of our inappropriate conversation today, some economists have explained why that's just not going to happen, why there's good economic reasons, there's clear social signposts that can be used to explain the cultural differences between now and even 50 years ago, much less 2,000 years ago or more years ago than that. But no, the place where my ire is the greatest here is toward Craig McConnell. He said this, that this question about gender relationships and gender identities, these differences, is not something that we could have differences of opinion about and still be in the circle of grace. The Ransom Heart podcast episodes, on more than one occasion, make this claim that what is not only a secondary issue in Scripture— not only something that I'm completely unconvinced Jesus addresses in the way that Eldridge and McConnell thinks he addressed them, but to say that it's elevated to the point of being you know, a pillar of the faith, 
that two people having a different point of view about what Jesus said or didn't say means that one person must be expelled from the church, has no hope of salvation, is outside the grace of Jesus Christ? There's something fundamentally flawed with this point of view. But Eldridge doubles down on the claim. In the episode, he says that Jesus Christ today, speaking the same words he spoke 2,000 years ago that are printed in the Bible, would have been arrested and convicted for hate crimes. Oh, really? In our culture, in our First Amendment free America, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, you honestly believe that Jesus Christ would be tried, arrested, convicted for hate crimes in our culture? I disagree, but I'll let it go for now, because unfortunately, Eldridge goes back to that same idea later. The main scripture passage that Eldridge quotes in this second gender episode is one that I've had presented to me before, interacting online with people that I either know or friends of friends in states that I used to live in, particularly in the heart of the heart of the country. I've had this passage shared with me as an example of how Jesus would deal with homosexuality were he here today. It is John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And in both of these examples, and in the ones I'm going to do after this, I'm going to quote using the um, New American Standard Bible, NASB. Now, part of the reason that I'm still using this particular translation, after referring to it only one week ago as being one of the bigger abominations in modern Christian history, is that it is still a word-for-word translation that has some value if you avoid the two or three places where the political influence has corrupted the text. But the other thing is, this is the preferred translation of people who would rewrite the Bible to support their conservative political ends. So I know I'm using a version of Scripture here that would be blessed by the religious right. John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again unto the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, in the very act. Now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, and from now on sin no more. It's that last section, that from now on sin no more passage, that gets reused so often when we're talking about these questions of homosexual rights and the roles of homosexual in society. But I'm sorry, telling people to stop sleeping around will never get you rung up on hate crimes. My perspective is that Jesus does give us the power to resist sin, but does he change identity? Does he change people's orientation? There are stereotypes, old stereotypes, I say, about men being courageous and women being merciful. And Eldridge uses this logic in the same way that people would use the logic to say that women shouldn't serve in the military. Eldridge is quick to point out that he believes women can be brave, whether he's answering real or imagined questioners. 
but it's clear that he doesn't have much of an answer to the question of women serving in the military. Eldridge and McConnell question whether there is dignity to genders if women and men behave outside the stereotype. They refer to someone in a non-traditional gender identity as being in high rebellion to creation and open rebellion to God. Jesus did say these things, they say, with no specifics about what he said that makes sense in this context. These are simply things that are true. They predate culture, civilization. They are part of the design of the universe. The point that I'm going to make as we move forward in this inappropriate conversation, particularly on the idea of gender, before we even get to the things they have to say about homosexuality, is this. I believe that there is a created order to the universe. I am willing to accept the idea that that represents an intelligent design, but I am going to hold the people who have that point of view to a high standard for taking their own ideas seriously. If this is a complex world, designed by someone with an infinite intellect, by a being that is omniscient, all-powerful, always present, outside the boundaries of time and space, among other qualities, then certainly we can use that infinite intellect to explain things we encounter in society, like bisexuality, like intersex anatomy, without having to pretend they don't exist. I'm going to come back in just a moment with the longer second part of these four podcasts, Jesus' view on homosexuality, which I consider to be an oxymoronic title. I just end up on a show where Bill and Ted's excellent adventure is up against Forbidden Planet, and somebody just voted for Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Welcome to Geek Fights, the Ponzi scheme of podcasting. I'm David Shaw. With me as always is Mr. Mike Ortiz. So what are we fighting about this time, David? Best sci-fi movie of all time. Best token minority. Best animated TV series. Listen. Geek my plan is for the show notes of this inappropriate conversation to have a link to a video, and I'll probably tweet the video as well. You can follow me on Twitter if you'd like at IC underscore Gregor. The link is to a video put up by someone named Hank under the uh, YouTube channel that I've got called Vlog Brothers. It's called Human Sexuality is Complicated. I shared this with some friends, and, and among the feedback that I've heard is that it sounds you know like a very scientific perspective, but it doesn't sound like it's a particularly religious perspective. But my answer to that is that if you are a supporter of the concept of intelligent design, this person is laying forth the case that this is clearly an aspect of design that is perhaps just a little bit too complicated for us to grasp if we go in with only two tools in the toolbox, one called male, one called female, or if we expand our palette by doubling up to include both male and masculine and both female and feminine, but even as some conservative Christians would tell you, they're a little bit uncomfortable with that either because they don't want any mixing of these two polarities. In the episode, Jesus' View on Homosexuality, Part 1, Eldridge once again refers to the same John chapter 8 passage with the woman caught in adultery. And it reminded me a lot of talking points that I've heard from people who say, well, you know, because the passage ends with Jesus saying, go and sin no more. It's not like Jesus is saying he's telling his followers and he's telling the Pharisees not to judge this woman. And he seems to be, again, once again, repudiating the Mosaic law and the idea that we're somehow under that law anymore. I won't dwell on this another time to say there's an article out on the website 
www.inappropriateconversations.org. I've spoken my mind on this issue pretty clearly, whether Christians have to follow Mosaic law, what it means to, what it means to say that Jesus fulfilled the law, and then to act at the same time as if that meant nothing. But in this case, it's this idea of Jesus saying, well, go and sin no more. Well, this isn't the only place that Jesus said, go and sin no more. John Eldridge refers to another passage in John's gospel, John chapter 5, where Jesus did a miraculous healing. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called, in Hebrew, Bethsaida, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet, and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews who were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. John chapter 5. And another example of, you know, in this case, a disabled beggar sitting by a pool, getting a sin no more warning. But note that sometimes Jesus did not attach affliction as a direct consequence of sin. He appears to, in this particular case, for this particular man, being the Son of God and knowing all about the man, even within the context of the Scripture passage. But in other passages, Jesus warns specifically against this particular superstition. For this example, you could go to Luke chapter 13, starting with verse 1. Now, on the same occasion... There were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans, because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that some of those eighteen on whom the Tower of Siloam fell were killed were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verses 1 through 5, Luke chapter 13, Jesus is saying that not all sin is an immediate superstitious cause and effect consequence you know, of a calamity falling on somebody. And every time something bad happens to you, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. But there is an example in Scripture, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, where Jesus did not warn someone to go and sin no more. 
despite the fact that the context of the passage clearly reveals that the individual had sins, according to Hebrew scripture, Hebrew law anyway. Luke chapter 7 begins this way. When he had completed all his discourse and the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does this. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. I'd like to quote some passages that I found online. Written a blog that I believe is called Evil Equal, and uh, by a username, Tom Sense, T-H-O-M-S-E-N-S-E, where observations about this particular passage, to me, are quite interesting. The word servant, in this case, is actually a translation of a word that appears to be referring to someone that you might have called in Roman times, not just a, uh, a squire, but a squire with benefits. Not all Romans use their squires like this. But Luke corroborates that in this particular instance, the Roman centurion mentioned in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, which is the parallel passage in the Synoptic Gospels to this Luke chapter 7, probably did use his squire in this particular way. In the story, the centurion refers to his squire as a servant or a slave and refers to him as an intimate ally. The word delus generically means slave. It could not mean son or boy. And intimos is honored. So the combination would produce this contradiction of honored slave. Now it's meaningless unless it's applied to a junior or younger male partner. Thus the meaning of this word, pious, in Matthew is limited to the partner in a same-sex relationship. Reputedly, the shield-bearers for Roman soldiers were at times also their lovers. In other words, there's a passage in both Matthew and Luke that tells a tale of one half of an LGBTQ couple being told that he had the greatest faith in all of Israel for believing that Jesus could heal his lover sight unseen. Now, unlike the woman who had been accused in adultery, Jesus never told this centurion to go and sin no more. None of this, of course, deals with the controversial segments at the end of the original passage I quoted from Matthew, the talk about eunuchs. Let me go back to that for just a moment and address the question of whether or not Jesus' point of view about gender and gender relationships was this duality that Eldridge and McConnell had presented to us. Picking up with verse 10 of chapter 19, after Jesus has made a very gender-specific answer to a very gender-specific question the Pharisees asked of him, the disciples say, well, if a relationship of man and wife is like this, it's better not to marry. And then Jesus gives this strange answer. 
Not everybody can accept this teaching, but there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What do we do with all this eunuch talk? Is it at least possible that Jesus is saying that there are going to be men who do not marry women and it's okay. And that some of them, perhaps like priests, have taken a vow of celibacy that they do not want to start a family. They want to devote their entire life's mission to the service of the church. And there are other men who don't have any interest in women because they've been castrated by the king, perhaps as slaves, perhaps as loyal subjects, but castrated for the purpose of making sure that men are available to serve inside his palace with no threat that those men will take sexual interest in any of his wives or any of his concubines and in any way create any dissent within the house of the king. But Jesus starts it by saying that there are some who are born that way. Now, if we're talking about this concept of being a eunuch, as being, you know, I don't believe that when someone makes himself a eunuch in this passage here, that Jesus is saying that in order to be a priest in his holy church, you must cut your testicles off. I think he's saying a voluntary vow of celibacy, an explanation for why somebody would not engage in sexual activity or procreative sexual activity. But of course, in the middle instance, we are talking about acts of violence that kings would perform to certain men, perhaps you know, slaves, perhaps enemy combatants, whatever, to make them safe sexually inside his palace home. So then what do we do when Jesus himself uses the expression born that way from their mother's womb? For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. Could it be that Jesus is referring to, by our modern standards, an untold number of people born without testicles? It seems highly unlikely that we have evolved to a place where now most young men are born with a full functioning scrotum. But in Jesus's time, it was a pretty common thing for boys to be born without testicles. I mean, it's certainly not an evangelical Christian perspective, because an evangelical Christian perspective is that man was born perfect in, in, you know, genetically in the form of Adam and Eve, and we've been on a fallen descent ever since. And that, you know, creation is essentially unraveling until Jesus comes in a second coming to set things right. No, I believe that probably we are facing more medical anomalies and more, you know, unique circumstances now than we did 2000 years ago. You had a smaller pool. Fewer people were being born. We were less aware of medical details. And just the lower childbirth rate alone would make what Jesus is saying very confusing. But the disciples don't question him on the examples that he uses. He's not using an example that they can't fathom what he's talking about. It's just possible. In fact, I would say very possible that Jesus is referring to people who might have been welcome to serve as servants or cooks or whatnot in the palace, because even though they still had fully functioning sexual organs, it was clear that from birth they had no interest in sexual relations with women. This is a very different view of gender than was presented to us in the first two parts of the podcast in the series that I'm discussing. It's probably important for me to remember that Eldridge was, and I suppose from the perspective of history, still is a different drummer. It's not that he doesn't have important points to make. It's not that he's all wrong. In fact, I consider this to be a somewhat secondary issue in the life of the church. But that makes me very different from his co-host McConnell, who feels that this is such an important issue that there can be no disagreement about people who are in the circle of grace. Eldridge says that it's particularly important that for us to truly understand Jesus, he has to be both a loving God 
and the judge of the world. My question, of course, is what would he judge? You know, I think that the most important thing that Jesus demonstrated himself standing in judgment over was self-serving hypocrisy above all. But we'll get to that later. Again, using a misemphasized reference to Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus was answering questions about divorce, Eldridge fails to point out that the Pharisees were specifically asking a question about a husband demanding a divorce from his wife. So, of course, Jesus gives a gender-specific answer. This doesn't provide the foundation that Eldridge thinks that it does. You see, if Eldridge is right, this was an opportunity for Jesus to answer the question much, much better. If this Matthew 19 passage is where Jesus is going to set once and for all in stone what the created order looks like from the perspective of gender, if we're supposed to focus only on the sexual parts and those parts giving us all the clues we need to understand what identity is, this was Jesus's opportunity to say so. Why didn't he here or ever spell out this abomination that the religious right refers to in homosexuality? Is Jesus not God incarnate? Could he only see 50 years into the future? Is that the extent of his prophetic vision when he foretold the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple? Or maybe Jesus just didn't care about the issue. That's it. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe Jesus didn't care about the issue. And what does it say about the passion you get from politically active Christians today when they care about the issue a lot more than Jesus did? I would offer a counter perspective, though. I would offer the perspective that Jesus cares a lot about the issue, and perhaps his de-emphasis is his answer. McConnell, trying to humanize the issue, perhaps, says this, quote, I'm feeling how harsh this does sound to, um, gays, um. McConnell says he has family and friends who are gay, but he also says that we cannot let our sympathy or our feelings be the final judge of what is true, right, or absolute. I don't want to be cold or doctrinaire about it, he says, or just fall victim to the feelings. Does loving others genuinely, does loving them as they are, as you find them in your walk, does that really make you a victim somehow? What does it mean to talk about yourself being a victim of your feelings because you feel guilty about failing to minister to the needs in a genuine loving way toward people who have taken the courageous step of telling you who they really are? Eldridge says, every human being has dignity, but our culture is confused about this issue. Quote, Jesus teaches that there is a design, and that the design is male and female, and that male and female come together and they are one flesh. There is no place for anything else, he says. His view is that homosexuality is an expression of human brokenness, which he compared to rage, selfishness, addiction, compulsions, and adultery. I'd say that this analogy breaks down over the question of control, the question of who versus what. His list of actions are what you do, but not who you are. Is being hot-tempered a sinful brokenness, even if you never express rage? Is Jesus incapable of redeeming the impatient or the hypersensitive? When he told the woman adulterer to sin no more, I believe that he helped her. He helped her resist lustful temptation. But he didn't change her sexual interest in men or her self-knowledge as a female-gendered person attracted to men. McConnell asked John Eldridge the choice question. You know, the, 
it's just a choice. It's not an identity. It's not who you are. But he worded it in a very specific way, using the expression, a clear volitional choice. Note that this isn't going to be just an odd turn of phrase. Eldridge said that no brokenness should be considered a clear volitional choice. But choices involved, or people would be just like robots. Quote, we have to retain the dignity of choice, or the alcoholic doesn't have hope. In other words, Eldridge is comparing homosexuality to alcoholism. There's very little medical evidence to back up that point of view. Of course, for Eldridge, the evidence comes from Dr. Joseph Nicolosi on reparative therapy for homosexuality. I'm not even going to address the issue in this particular episode. If I have to go into the questions raised by reparative therapy for homosexuality, I may have to do it at some future time, maybe even a far future time, in its own show. It's enough to say that I believe we have reached a medical scientific consensus on this with the strong conclusion that it isn't therapy, but a harsh form of behavior modification. If you choose to think of brainwashing as a comparison, I won't stop you. That's not exactly a ringing endorsement. Referring to homosexuality as being related to abuse and harm, quote from Eldridge, there is usually a woundedness in the story blaming either a father wound or a very domineering or clinging mother, and maybe some sexual wounding in there as well. Now, he granted that there is evidence, even evidence in the womb related to testosterone levels, that there is some sort of original form of same-sex attraction. There is some perhaps genetic answer to the question. But he compared that to early indicators of being prone to alcoholism and dismissed the genetics on that front. Elder's answer is to restate that science is studying a broken world, and therefore nothing that science reveals can be trusted about the design of the universe. The only person you have in the world who is not broken is Jesus Christ, says Eldridge. I agree with him, but my answer is that we live in that world, and it is folly to deny evidence. God has revealed himself to us in more ways than just scripture. John Wesley cites scripture, tradition, reason, faith, Others make other citations as well. We must deal with the world we've been given in just the way that Jesus did. Jesus walked the earth. He encountered people. He asked them their story. He shared his good news. Where did this sinner heal thyself attitude in the church come from? We act as though when you boil this thing down, this idea of Jesus saying, hey, hey, go and sin no more somehow means that you're not welcome to be part of the body of Christ. You're not welcome in the doors of that church until you first stop being the person that you genuinely are. Now, I don't believe that anybody is genuinely in their heart of hearts an adulterer, but I believe that people are genuinely heterosexual or genuinely homosexual or genuinely bisexual. And we don't have any evidence in Scripture of Jesus telling people to stop being that or even miraculously empowering them to make that kind of transformation. Eldridge says there is nothing in an understanding of God's design of gender that could lead you to believe that God makes men or women gay. Well, I believe in design, conceptually, maybe even more than conceptually, and I believe that this quote sells that glory short. There is much more complexity in nature and in creation that is of God it's too easy to say, hey, anything I politically disagree with is just a sign of brokenness and we can ignore it. 
God has placed us in this earth, in this place, and in this time for a reason. We've been placed in this time in history, interacting with the people that we're supposed to be interacting with, and we're sinning greatly if we don't interact for a reason. If you decide that reason is not his design, then perhaps we've been placed on this earth to interact with something that is beyond his design. We cannot bury our heads in the sand and say that anything that doesn't look like Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 isn't real. Making another comparison to the idea of non-design or brokenness, Eldridge and McConnell suggest that society wouldn't accommodate someone struggling with depression. But what would we think about denying anger management clients or those dealing with suicidal thoughts, the right to work or marry, and much more, because they are just that way? I think that we do make a great deal of accommodation toward people who are depressed, people who are dealing with anger issues, people who are broken, as he describes it. This is the state of the debate today on questions of rights, and the point of view being expressed in these podcasts is hypocritical. In fact, it's deeply offensive to compare homosexual orientation to cancer. Fatally flawed, in fact, to say that all homosexuals are victims of broken families and abuse. Has this different drummer now sacrificed all credibility? And is this what his friends and family warned about from the start? When we go to those first two episodes on gender, which you might think, well, I'll just skip those because they're unrelated to these two episodes on homosexuality. No, to me, they're very interesting because everyone in his family warned him. Say, well, I don't know if you want to talk about homosexuality. I'm afraid of what might happen if you bring that issue up. Well, are they afraid of what might happen because some, you know, political correctness force is going to come and, and harass them? Or are they afraid of bringing up because they fear that it might reveal things that are deeply, deeply flawed in their relationship with others, where the love of Jesus Christ is nowhere to be found? This episode on homosexuality, part one, ended with a reference to sexual confusion coming from Satan. Is Satan's most destructive work related to human sexuality? That's some very Middle Ages thinking, to be overly generous. Maybe Satan is trying to keep people out of the church instead. Maybe he's succeeding. And the wawa pedals on the ground. This is where we're going to have the music. The music. Which hopefully we will either find or Jim will provide for us. Can you type porn music into I'm iTunes and see what happens? I'm not typing porn into anything. <laughs> I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly. The podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. In his crucial nonfiction work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis refers to sexual ethics as being the least important of all the areas of sin and resisting temptation. And yet here we are, just a generation later, with people like John Eldridge following the rest of evangelical Christianity and seemingly making it the most important. I think C.S. Lewis 
was much, much closer to the truth. In the episode Jesus' View of Homosexuality Part 2, McConnell started by restating the claim that Eldridge made, that Jesus today would be, quote, arrested, tried, and hung for hate crimes, that Jesus would be viewed as homophobic and filled with hate and rage, and that our broken society would perceive him as such. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Jesus would be totally misunderstood by our society, but the confusion would be from some Christians over Jesus' complete lack of homophobia or bigotry. My guess is that he would be incredibly disappointed to them, because just like he never spoke about the issues of homosexuality in Scripture, my guess is he would have a very different thing to say if he were here today. Note the difference. The speakers in this case are presuming that Jesus would speak from a perspective of hate and therefore be denied and denounced. But really, most of this is ridiculous hyperbole. And a lot of the reason that my ire was up enough to say, I'm actually going to have to spend an episode just calling out a podcast. I wanted to speak instead just more broadly about the violence inherent in denying that people are who they say they are. What it means to deny that people exist, or that who they are isn't real, and therefore they can't be that, or they can't exist. But what it really comes down to from a Christian perspective is a refusal to love people genuinely. But instead, when we're having people insinuate that Jesus would be hung for hate crimes today, give me the name of the American citizen last hung for hate crimes. And didn't that person, who by the way wasn't hung, Didn't he blow up a federal building and murder dozens of people? Wasn't it more than just his words? Even though probably that individual did have a lot of homophobia and bigotry in his life. Again, the woman being caught in adultery isn't suffering from some sort of broken sexuality, as elders suggest, in comparison to homosexuals. You know, adulterer is not a sexuality. Promiscuous is not a sexual identity. Eldridge and McConnell make a serious category mistake here. And the video that I intend to post up on the show notes gives a pretty good example of what a much more holistic view is of things. And at no point would anybody seriously say, well, hey, when Jesus told her to go and sin no more, that was the same thing as speaking to homosexuals because her entire sexual identity was adulterer. I don't believe that for a second. The passage in John chapter 8 sounds like the entire thing was simply a setup, a frame job designed to trick this woman into making this particular mistake so that she could be brought before Jesus and Jesus could in some way either disavow Hebrew law or violate Roman law by recommending that an illegal execution be performed by people who under Roman occupation no longer had the authority to execute people. You can tell that there's something wrong in this passage, not only because John says so explicitly in the text, but also when you've got somebody who's caught in adultery There's usually two parties, not just a woman, but also a man. John Eldridge specifically states that Jesus wouldn't shy away from calling homosexuality a sin, that the scriptures are very clear on that. Okay, chapter and verse time, and you better do much better than some lame divorce analogy. If Jesus is talking about homosexuality in any passage in the New Testament, it needs to be a passage that, I don't know, is about homosexuality. Yes. Hebrew scriptures are very clear, but Hebrew Hebrew scriptures are being referred to here by a man who said he came to fulfill the law and told us that our commandments were that we love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. 
And don't play the game of playing Paul against Jesus as if Paul had something greater to say that Jesus would have gone along with. Because Paul himself quotes the very passage in Leviticus that Jesus cited. Love your neighbor as you love yourself fulfills all the law. And whoever does that is not beholden to any chapter and verse. Paul, the letter to Romans, chapter 13. So, I would say the scriptures are very clear. That Jesus did not speak openly about this issue at all. And any effort to imply that Jesus did is, shall we say, confused. At the very least, Jesus' emphasis is very different from what you'd expect if you're listening to the religious right. Is our culture broken and sinful? Yes. And certainly putting words into Jesus' mouth is a great primary example of this kind of sin. Eldridge like other social conservatives, believes he is providing what he calls a pretty clear example or illustration when he says the feminine body is designed to receive sexually and the rectum of a man is not. Now, is this a self-serving argument that we should follow to its conclusion? Perhaps it's time we did take this idea at face value, saying yes, let's rely upon design and go where that takes us. But let's agree beforehand to abide by the conclusion despite any presumptions. In other words, if the male rectum is designed to receive stimulation, then let's drop all this talk about the misuse of the body. It's at this point that I feel like I probably need to refer to someone who isn't me. And the reasons for that are probably obvious. I'm a heterosexual male. I am not part of some sort of scientific research group. I haven't interviewed thousands of people. I don't have firsthand experience so to speak, in this area. That was a pun, by the way. But it's enough to say that the prostate gland has a role to play in male sexuality. And I'm going to suggest to you that exceptions to this argument, this misuse of the body idea, has more to do with homophobia than any particular form of scientific research. And what I mean by that is this, that it is possible in fact, I, my guess is that well more, well more than 50% of men can be stimulated to orgasm and or ejaculation through you know, digital contact uh, within the anus of the prostate gland itself. I think I mentioned a while back, talking about the calling the shots episode, that I hesitated to go in this direction, but there might be a day when I would have no choice. And it's in answering this question, because Eldridge is maintaining from a position where he is not an expert that the only sexual contact that is part of quote-unquote design is penis within vagina. And yes, we'll get here in a moment to the idea of whether or not there's a certain difference between penis within vagina versus penis within anus. But just to dismiss the entire avenue of any sort of anal contact having a role to play in sexuality, it doesn't jive with the facts, it doesn't jive with human physiology, And it it doesn't really make the argument that Eldridge supposes that it does. For starters, there's a lot more involved in human sexuality than just genital contact. As a corresponding thought to this, there are allegedly a great many male homosexuals who do not engage in anal play whatsoever. So this notion that homosexuality is inherently about anal sex is a mistake. Homosexuality is a sexual orientation. And that can manifest itself in a great variety of ways. I guess the answer that I would put back to Eldridge is, is your anal sex with your wife different than a man's anal sex with his partner? 
or are we really saying that there's just some superstition here around the concept of anal play at all? I believe that when you look at the experts and the information that they have gathered, again, you're going to find that well over 50% of men respond sexually to that particular kind of contact. It's not an indication of sexual orientation. This is true of heterosexual men, bisexual men, homosexual men, the full gamut. In fact, I would suggest that the number is much, much bigger than 50%. Speaking again on behalf of someone who isn't me, I haven't done this research myself or with a partner, but probably the biggest impediment to that number being much larger is homophobia. There, there are people who have not bothered to prove or disprove the theory, myself included, on the basis of the idea that it just seems like something that they're afraid of. Remember, sexual practice begins in the brain. The primary sexual organ is the brain. I'm not saying that every time somebody gets a prostate exam, they're inevitably going to have a sexual response, or 50% of men are going to have a sexual response. The number of people who have a sexual response in a prostate exam is probably very, very small. And the reason that it's small is that the most important sexual organ of all is disengaged. But if that sexual organ, the brain, was engaged and was actively and voluntarily participating in a non-coercive, consensual sexual act, again, I think you're going to find that the numbers are much, much bigger than 50% and cut across all sorts of questions of orientation and identity. The point of all this, definitely a tangent, but the point of all this is to say that if we can establish that this sort of contact from this sort of back direction, back door direction with the prostate has a sexual component to it that can be documented. I mean, in animal husbandry, this is done to farm animals all the time. This is one way you can take a sperm sample from something like a bull, is to go in anally, stimulate the prostate, and generate the physiological response. So if Eldridge's conclusion is that because the anus was not made for sexual practice, and therefore all male homosexuality is wrong, what if you turn around and say, well, hang on a second, Medically, physiologically, there is a role to be played physically in sexuality for that part of the body. Doesn't that toss his proverbial baby completely out with its bathwater? This is an area where so many people, particularly on the conservative side of the political spectrum, speak of things they know nothing about. By speaking of select sexual acts as dangerous, Eldridge makes a false appeal to fear and authority. This is a logical fallacy, even when anecdotal facts are available to support him. The truth is that male-on-male -male anal sex is not analogous to male-female vaginal sex. It's a logical fallacy to compare the two and to call one dangerous in comparison to the other. Male-on-male -male anal sex is roughly, though not anywhere near exactly, analogous to male-on-female anal sex. Or, and I'm guessing here, would Eldridge rule that out as well? And just how limited is the sexuality being discussed here within married partnerships? Eldridge says, this is not designed for that, and refers to things being equal as if they were equal. Well, fingers can stimulate sexual organs, or mouths, or noses, or elbows too. And by the way, not all male homosexuals engage in anal sex. Or is this where this middle age view of sexuality drops all the way into a dark ages view of sexuality. And we begin to talk about the evils of touching anything besides genitals. Is this just sheer hypocrisy or should I be tempted to stop and pray for the wives of these two men?
You see, even if it isn't hypocrisy, which might be the worst of the two options, by the way, if these are true believers of the concepts they're sharing, how does Eldridge measure that fine line between giving it a good shake after urinating and masturbation? It seems to me that homosexuality is nowhere near the most confusing issue that's up for discussion at this point in time. Not when human sexual response covers a great deal and a great variety of erogenous zones, many of which we don't cover up with clothing on a daily basis. Is there something wrong with mouths, noses, earlobes that we ought to be aware of? Are we just one step further away from this particular view from fundamentalists in America, away from dressing all women up in burqas and perhaps men in something worse? I believe that Jesus can and does work miracles in the lives of those in relationship with him. I know that he intervened in my life, and I neither want to overplay nor underplay what that means. When Eldridge refers to Jesus offering more than forgiveness, but restoration too, I understand that. But not in the context of sexual identity and orientation, because Christ hasn't revealed that to us. Ever? Well, for such an important issue to so many Christians, the evidence suggests yes, ever. Christ has not revealed that to us, ever. It's important enough that we note this. Because if this is the issue upon which we're going to divide society, or even divide churches down the middle, if these are the people we've decided are worth or not worth reaching out to and ministering to, we better be right about what we read in Scripture. We better not be misreading a direct answer about a male-female question that Pharisees gave to Jesus, not because they wanted to know the answer, but because they wanted to trick him and trap him and make him look silly. We best not think that what he said in response to that is somehow the only thing he comprehends as God incarnate walking on the face of this earth. If it sounds like I'm serious, I am. If it sounds like I'm angry, I am. We don't have a passage in scripture of Jesus changing the sexual orientation of any person. And yet this is the very issue that so many churches have divided over. What does it mean to love our neighbor? Do they have to change first? This notion of restoration has to be much more than empowering you to live in eternal celibacy or deadening your conscience so that you can lie to yourself sufficiently in order to perform sexually with a person you aren't attracted to. Please tell me we aren't perverting, truly perverting the meaning of the word restoration. Finally, as the last of these topics in these four podcast episodes comes up, Eldridge refers to Jesus interacting with a hypothetical homosexual man or woman. He says this, quote, There would be no condemnation in his eyes, absolutely none. There would be no disgust in his face, absolutely none, none whatsoever. But just as he handles the rest of us, as he handles me, he says, Hey, John, you have some issues here, pal. Jesus is very frank with me. Why then are we being told by Christians that as Christians we should react with disgust? Oh, you can say it isn't really disgust and condemnation, but ask the person on the receiving end. Then you'll know for certain. No doubt, the response would be about, well, there's a gulf between our human failings and Christ's perfection, but I'm not sure I even see us pretending to do things Jesus' way. 
It's not that Eldridge has described Jesus badly by saying that he would reach out to people lovingly and genuinely with no condemnation and, and no visceral reaction of, of ugliness. We're just not even pretending to follow his lead. Most of these podcasts were about justifications for not doing it Jesus's way. Eldridge concludes that Jesus offers compassion, love, and understanding, rightly so. And he also says, go and sin no more. Please stop destroying your life. The difference between a mythical Jesus and the real Jesus is his role in that process. Where Jesus refuses to make radical changes, we need to question what he really wants. Jesus can, would, and could empower the woman to resist adultery. He could enable the wealthy man to function in ministry without his massive possessions. He could give up all of his possessions first. Jesus would make that happen. But Jesus did not ask the Roman officer to give up his beloved slave. Why not? Oh, there will be accusations of my selective reading of Scripture. But this clearly goes both ways, doesn't it? I want those accusations to disappear. I want a clear and emphatic scriptural statement about something that is, as we're told, this important. Citing McConnell again, this is not something we could have differences of of opinion on and still be in the circle of grace. If McConnell is saying you can't be a Christian and have a different opinion with the religious right on this issue, then it's important enough that scripture should have been more clear. Jesus should have spoken more clearly. If it's that important, if it's a measure of who does and who does not get God's grace, then Jesus would have taken advantage of any opportunity or forced an opportunity to occur to answer this question once and for all. The viewpoint of Eldridge is that Jesus wants to both love and heal homosexuals. Christ's people need to do much better at following his lead on the love side of that ledger. But what do we mean by heal? It is a worldly rather than godly thing to talk of healing that isn't transformative. And it is almost certainly an act of psychological violence to call brainwashing techniques a healing. It appears at the end of his podcast that Eldridge is focused on all same-sex attraction coming from wounds. This is among the concepts that I liked from his book, this idea of wounds in Wild at Heart, for example. Yes, we all have wounds. Yes, Jesus wants to find us at our place of greatest hurt and heal. But it is a serious mistake to presume that all homosexuality comes from this place of wound. The bottom line to this approach, all of us have been scarred. All of us have been scarred by bullying or abuse. But all of us aren't gay. Some people who actually emerge from adolescence without a scratch on them are homosexual, while others aren't gay. This approach misses the mark for people who claim to love God with all of their hearts and minds, because our minds reject the evidence before us. We're not rejecting the evidence because this is a broken, fallen world, and we're broken, fallen people who cannot interpret evidence. We're people who've been placed on this planet by God himself at this point in time to serve a specific ministry to this set of people, and it is profoundly sinful and profoundly wrong to presume that those people don't really need our help after all, because we're not going to reach out to them genuinely. We're going to reach out to them as if there's some compromise that can be made where they aren't really who they say they are. They're people who've been hurt. 
They've either been hurt by abusive parents. They've been hurt by the bullying at school. They're in denial that it happened. Or if it didn't happen, they've somehow been harmed by that instead. The desperation in these podcasts is hidden so well, and yet it's there. It's a desperation to call something that they've decided is wrong, wrong no matter what. Even if the scripture doesn't back it up, find a scripture that gets close. Even if that reading from Matthew chapter 19 seems to suggest Jesus is referring to people who were born without a, without a sexual attraction to women, what do we do with that? Well, McConnell, speaking again about gay family members, says that he wants to hold back from speaking the truth as he sees it because he perceives it as being not loving or will come out that way as, as unloving. But Eldridge encourages him to speak up and set an example It's not love to let your drunk friend drive, for example. What McConnell is dismissing as just feelings is perhaps, in fact, the Holy Spirit doing a work of God by calling this perceptively unloving behavior as just that, not godly, not Christ-like. Where did we as Christians get the idea that we needed to stand in judgment of people, or that people need to present themselves as pure before us before earning our fellowship? What makes us think that we, not the Holy Spirit, but we need to convict, in Christian terms, our family, friends, and neighbors? Sorry, maybe Christians need to listen to that still, small voice inside them saying that their approach is wrong, saying that their approach is not loving. Now, to be fair, Eldridge says that there is no place for anger and hatred if you are reaching out in love. But this is so close in his usage, to the love the sinner, hate the sin talk, that it's worth calling it out for the blasphemy that it is. Yes, love the sinner, hate the sin is blasphemy. It is us pretending to be God and taking his place and assuming a role that he has reserved for himself. That's not love. It's pride. It is bigotry dressed up as concern. It is sanctimonious at best to talk of how your heart breaks for those in your circles who are lost and who are doomed because of who they are, especially if it is coupled with how you think you can save them, even if by save them you only mean sharing the gospel. And worse, what if you only mean sharing the gospel with people who have sufficiently changed to impress you that they actually do have a place in your church, and in your fellowship. These are four podcast episodes by somebody that I respect enough on paper, by by that I mean in his books, to call him a different drummer. But this is such an unholy set of conversations, of scripture twisting, of half-truths, of half-hearted concern, that I think you'll understand now why I started this by saying, hey, If you're somebody who has a heart for your homosexual friends and neighbors, if you are a homosexual, if you're somebody who are engaged in this kind of outreach, maybe after hearing this inappropriate conversation, you'll bypass the step of listening to these four podcasts, because maybe you don't want to hear some of the things that I've quoted, and certainly you don't want to hear more than what I've already shared. I don't know what to do with that, except to say that Harvey Milk was right, that The first step in any relationship is for people to say, here is who I am. Tell me who you are. And that is never going to advance into any sort of redemptive, transformative relationship between individuals, 
or between a person and their God if it starts by making sure that people have to tell us a lie because we refuse to accept who they are and therefore we refuse to listen to it. If you have a different opinion, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and comments are enabled at the show notes page www.inappropriateconversations.org. Inappropriate Conversations as a show is available on Stitcher Smart Radio, www.stitcher.com, the smarter way to listen to radio. Thanks for listening.